Good morning. I'm Jason Kay, a recovered compulsive eater and bulimic from outside of Philadelphia. Um, happy to be here. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I was thinking we'd have a little bit more, and we read the steps, and we said, we got right to it. I like that. Um, I don't know how I got chosen to go first, but I said, Naomi, do you want to go first, or should I go first? She says, you go first. Um, okay, okay. Um, so what I'd like to do is uh, share a little bit of my story and what brings me to you here today. Um, I am a recovered compulsive eater and bulimic, and I introduced myself like that because the book uses the word recovered, it doesn't say recovering, um, and there's a certain connotation to that, uh, to me, which speaks to hope. Um, this book for me speaks of hopelessness to hope, um, from despair to promises coming true. So I'm gonna try to share some of my story today, but keep it grounded in the literature and um, refer back to the big book. So that's my goal today. And um, I'm so happy that Kim asked me to step on, speak on step one. Because for me, step one is absolutely fundamental, important. It's the foundation of everything, and it drives our experience through the entire rest of the work. Uh, I truly believe if we can convince people of step one, they're going to get through the rest. Because step one is, again, it's that foundation. If we understand the nature of the illness, uh, the solution becomes very self-evident and very apparent. Uh, and for me, I went to an Overeaters Anonymous when I was about 20 years old. I went to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous, and I heard people saying I'm a compulsive overeater, uh, and I had some problems with food. Uh, I had been binging and eating so much that it, I was so uncomfortable that I'd make myself throw up. Um, but I didn't really, really know what it meant to be um, a compulsive eater. And so I think that's a really fundamental key thing um, to understand what it what what is a compulsive eater? What is the nature of this illness, this disease that we have? And the way the big book is laid out is the doctor's opinion, um, and then a bunch of different chapters. Then on page sixty, it starts to say things like, "Well, this brings us to step three. What that means to me is everything up to page sixty is all about steps one and two. So again, are they important? I think so. And again, they they underlie everything. So I'd like to just start by reading a little bit from the doctor's opinion. Uh, page XXVII, a first full paragraph. It says, We believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol in these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. The phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form, once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it. Once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things humans, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So the first thing I like to do is look at words and definitions. An allergy, and I define an allergy as an adverse abnormal reaction uh, to something. So let's make it more concrete. Look, think about poison ivy. If I touch poison ivy, if I get close to it, I have an adverse abnormal reaction. I break out into these rashes and all these bumps and it's itchy and it's scratchy and it's uncomfortable. Now, if I go into some of my allergic foods, my alcoholic foods, which for me are, you know, cookies, cakes, ice cream, candy, you know, flour, sugar, all those kind of goodies, I break out in an allergy which is characterized by the desire for more. And uh, over and over again, this book talks about how we're not like 
normal eaters. And I study normal eaters sometimes, like, you know, kind of like the scientist studies, you know, uh, you know, cells and bugs and everything and just looking at them on a microscope. Because they'll use this word craving uh, for me in a way that is um, a little confusing. Uh, so, for instance, I had a friend who's a normal eater, and she says, oh, I, ha I have a craving, I had a craving for this, you know. And she had this kind of gastric bypass or this sleeve thing, and she can eat, can eat six ounces at a time. And she said something, so I'm kind of looking at her experience, and I'm, I'm trying to see if she's a compulsive eater, and I'm trying to look at my own experience. And she says, you know, I had a craving for something last sleep. Really? What do you do when you have a craving? She says, well, I, I get the thing, I eat the thing, and the craving's gone. I'm like scratching my head. I'm like, wow, interesting. Because when I have a craving, uh, it's very, very different than that. I'm going to the store. I'm purchasing these items. I'm going to the store later on. I'm purchasing those items. I'm going to the same store, but then I feel like they're getting to know me. And I don't want to be, you know, that guy that, you know, and I'm judging myself. But yet I'm seeing that, you know, the truck hasn't come to restock that item, right? You know, this is weeks later. And I'm going to the different store. No, oh, the truck came at this store, and I'm going back. And then maybe that craving shifts from, from one thing you know, to another. So this, this talks about craving, but not in the traditional sense of the word that we talk about, um, like craving that normal people um, have. Um, and I'd like to look below on the page as well, on the bottom of that same page, is men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. This sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can experience success in ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. So for me, a core condition of this uh, disease and we we talk about this disease concept of compulsive eating it's it's the same as an addiction the addiction to alcoholism but what happens when we're untreated when we're suffering from this disease of alcoholism is we're restless irritable and discontent and this kind of describes me as I started um, and to tell you a little bit of my story as I, I came into adolescence and in my teenage years that restlessness, irritability, discontent, you know, I just didn't feel right. I didn't feel good in my skin. I didn't feel close and connected to my family. My parents are wonderful people. My sisters are wonderful people. Yet I seemed to just hate them. I didn't want to be like them. I had this sort of stated goal, you know, to be the opposite of my mom and my dad because I had this, you know, I loathed them. I sort of despised them. I created this separateness from from them and I was always seeking something I was trying to find you know the right girl the right school schedule the right sports team but I just was never comfortable in my own skin so what could relieve that for me was food and certain food behaviors and this effect that food gives me again it's different it's different for me than it is for the normal compulsive eater and, you know, so I'd come home in high school and I'd be seeking this effect. I'd be fearful, restless, irritable, discontent. And so I'd start making certain food and food, and food concoctions, um, you know, putting butter on the fry pan with bread and, you know, about a half gallon thing of chocolate milk. And, you know, I'm preparing this. And if you would have looked at me, it's kind of like, um, and, and, and I look at this, I look at that food does something for me that's indescribably wonderful. It does something for me that's, it doesn't do for the normal eater. So eating these certain specific alcoholic foods gives me such a tremendous effect 
that it relieves that psychic pain that I'm experiencing. It relieves that sense of the spiritual malady that I'm feeling restless, irritable, and discontent because I can eat these specific foods and these specific combinations and these specific amounts. And then all of a sudden I'm saying, sitting there feeling like, ah, okay, okay. And I can get me off of myself for at least a little bit of time. And this special effect, it's, it's something that's sort of indescribably wonderful that food does for me that it doesn't do for the normal person. And if food didn't do that for me, we, I wouldn't have let it do to me what it's going to do to me as I pursue that effect. And again, it talks about here that this sensation is elusive. Um, what does that mean? That means I come home the next day, I prepare, prepare the same things, I get the effect, but not, not quite, not quite. And so I go back. I'm looking for a little bit more. What else? And then I miss the mark. I'm over. Okay, throw up. Try again. Okay, maybe it's not the right food. Try something else. Try something different. Get the effect. Okay, I got it. This is it. Pursue that effect. Pursue the effect. Where can I get this food? How can I get this food? You know, going, going to, going to, and it's weird because, you know, for me, I almost went to any lengths to get the effect um, to try to seek it out, to try to find it, you know, stealing money from my mom's desk, trying to go to the store, and it'd be, you know, this thing, this thing. It's, you know, the, the, the sweet, the flour, the this, and then, then something salty. And again, always seeking that effect, because again, at my core, I'm restless and irritable and discontent. So, and this effect, you know, it, we, what it did for me is it created this really abnormal relationship with food. Um, and again, food was giving me um, almost this mini spiritual experience to, to kind of relieve that psychic pain. Um, but then, of course, it's creating more pain. It's creating more suffering, more struggles, more physical problems uh, as well. Uh, and, you know, uh, I had this experience once where I came into work and I had, you know, like the energy drink and I'm carrying it along. And my boss looks at me and she says, you have this, she said, you have this really bizarre relationship with those energy drinks. And I said, really? Okay. And I look back and what it was is this, this was this like that Lord of the Rings character who's talking about this is my precious thing. <laughs> precious, you know. Okay. Again, it did something for me. It changed my state of thinking, my state of feeling, my state of being. Um, so again, I followed that effect. Um, uh, I, I followed that effect. And on XXIX, I'll just kind of go forward into this, and it talks about having succumbed to the desire again. Um, as so many do, the phenomenon of craving develops, and we pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over again, unless the person can experience entire psychic change. There's very little hope of his recovery. So how many people here have sworn off? So who, who quit for good and for all, you know? I did it like pretty much every day, you know, for a long time, right? And in the beginning, I wasn't really sure I had a problem with food. And again, this, this disease is progressive, um, so it gets worse and worse. So I went to my first meeting when I was 20 years old. When I was 37, I finally came to a point where I understood, I think I understood what step one was and became willing to surrender and go to any lengths and get recovered. So I have a year and a half of abstinence because I'm 38 right now. So, um, 
So in that time period, what happened from age 20, I come to OA, I'm a compulsive eater, I'm, I'd say it in a meeting, I'm leaving the meeting, maybe I'm not really a compulsive eater. I don't want to be part of this group, I don't want to be like these people. Um, maybe I'm not, you know, I'd leave, you know, I wouldn't go to the meetings, I'd buy all this literature and then I'd sell it or give it away or donate it. Um, and then what would happen? I keep pursuing the effect, the food keeps becoming out of control, I can't control it. I keep swearing off, right? But I don't have the power, and I don't realize I don't have the power to stop and, and, and stay stopped, right? Not just stop for a little bit and stay stopped. So um, for me, I went through that cycle for about 17 years before I really understood what was happening. And because I thought I had the power to stop and because I was telling myself, you know, I should stop, I need to stop, I have to stop, you know, it was about, in my height, I was about 60 pounds heavier you know, the bulimia started prog progressing as well, so it became more and more and more. So, you know, I can't sleep at night, I'm feeling suicidal. You know, I go to lay down, let's say maybe I made it to bed and I didn't throw up. I lay down, but there's so much food that it's coming up anyways, and I'm jumping out of bed and I'm throwing up. I'm, you know, eating um, enough antacids, uh, you know, for three days worth, and they're telling you you shouldn't eat those and I'm switching that with Alka-Seltzer and Pepto-Bismol and everything and I can't stop having heartburn and I can't sleep right because of the heartburn and I'm awake at night feeling ashamed of myself because I can't stop and I feel such self-hatred and such shame um, that I can't, I can't seem to stop that my options are uh, kill myself or you know go back to OA but it doesn't work for me right it didn't work but I wasn't really doing it. So that's kind of that predicament that I got myself into. Um, so we make this, and this cycle here on the top of that page talks about, we make the resolution, right? We say, I'm gonna stop eating compulsively. Uh, and we're stuck within the phenomenon of craving. And for me, that's like saying, I'm gonna hold my breath and never breathe, breathe again, right? What happens when we hold our breath? <gasps> well, it's okay, I can do this, right? I'm gonna stop eating compulsively. It's like taking that breath okay, I'm going to do this, I got this. But very quickly, something starts happening. It says, take that breath. You got to take that breath, you know. You got to take that bite. You got to take that bite. And I start this argument with myself. No, I don't want to. I'm going to stop. And it's an argument. Well, maybe I should. Maybe I shouldn't. And then that starts, that battle starts going on. And again, I'm, I'm in, involved in this craving. I'm, I'm not working the steps. So that voice keeps going and going and going. And that's mm -hmm irrevocably leading me to the next compulsive bite, the next, um, the next binge, the next um, indulgence into those things. And sometimes that could be between uh, breakfast and lunch. Then lunch I swear off again, I'm never gonna do it. And then by dinner, you know, because you know, you give me about four or five hours and that food starts digesting and I get hungry and you know, then, it, then my mind starts working on me again. And then I start, you know, I start, it starts going back um, again and again. Um, so again, I wanted to get back to the text a little bit and kind of read um, some stuff and then kind of go off of, go off of that and talk, to, talk about my own experience. Um, so I just kind of picked out um, some things on page 18 um, in what um, some people like to call the squiggly writing, um, the italics, the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution is properly armed with the facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. And what that means to me is 
Uh, I like to think about steps one, um, two, and three as identification steps. There's no real action that you need to take to take step one. Step one happens um, internally, and later on it says we had to concede to our innermost self that we were in fact alcoholics, um, that we were in fact compulsive eaters. Um, so this idea that when we, um, this is the first step is something that happens through reading, identification, um, talking with other people. Um, so yeah. Uh, okay, so I also wanted to look at page 20, um, some of the common misconceptions. And again, for people who have this disease, and the, the big book spends a lot of time talking about what about the real alcoholic? What about um, the, the true alcoholic? And it talks about sometimes moderate drinkers. Sometimes it talks about heavy drinkers. So it's the same thing with heavy eaters or moderate eaters. Sometimes um, they talk about in here, it says, if a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this person can stop or moderate. So, the, so part of this first step experience is asking people, did you have sufficient reason to stop? And could you stop or moderate given those sufficient reasons? And again, I learn a lot by contrast. So some people in my life really confuse me because they say, well, my doctor said my sugar levels are funny and stop eating sugar. And he said, the guy that I was talking to said, and I stopped <coughs> eating sugar and I lost like 25 pounds and it's great, you know, and life is good. And I'm looking at that person, like, again, scratching my head. This book talks about lack of power is our dilemma. We don't have the power to do this. Our willpower is strangely damaged and weakened and insufficient for us as compulsive eaters to make this decision and, and carry it out. So looking at people like that, they're not real compulsive, compulsive eaters. And I had to understand that I was a real compulsive eater. Um, this talks about um, moderate drinkers have little, little tr trouble giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. Um, certain hard drinkers, again, can, can do this. And again, talking to a friend at work, she said, you know, I just, I was sitting there, uh, you know, I, I just looked around at what I was eating and I was disgusted with myself. And she said, I just decided something had to change and I needed to stop. And this woman was losing weight. She was getting smaller, thinner, you could see it. And again, I said, I make that decision like every day. Like, <laughs> like, I'm like, I get to that point like every day, like a couple times a day. You know, she had the power to carry it out. I don't. Understanding this, again, this powerlessness, my willpower. Because I, you know, I tried to, tried to um, gather up my will. You know, um, Bill talks about it in his story. He says the courage to do battle was gone at, at different times. I'm hopeless. And then I say, I'm going to kind of lift myself up by my bootstraps, you know, I'm going to try, well, hypnosis this time, or if I can get the proportions right on the zone diet, if it's 30, 30, 40, that's going to be it, because then I'm going to finally feel satiated, or just give me some fun size, you know, fun size, um, <laughs> for the recording, I just did air quotes, fun size, because for us, fun size is like, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's unlimited quantity, you know, all you can eat. That's our fun size. So I'd eat some fun size candy things because with every meal because I couldn't seem to stop, right? So I'm trying all these things. Well, let me take a food journal and I'll become aware and more conscious of what I'm eating. So I'm writing everything down along with my feelings, right? But guess what? I'm feeling happy, I'm eating compulsively. I'm feeling bored, I'm eating compulsively. I'm feeling sad, dejected, discouraged, I'm still eating compulsively. So no matter what, 
I was eating compulsively because that's what a compulsive eater does. That's what people who have this um, disease um, struggle with. So um, on page 21, it talks about um, at some stage of his drinking career, and this is like the second paragraph down, the end of the paragraph, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. So this is a question we have to ask. And part of what this book is doing when it's talking about the real alcoholic um, and the moderate drinker, the um, hard drinker, it's just trying to qualify us. And we have to understand the nature of the problem um, to accept the nature of the solution. Once the nature of the problem becomes clear, crystal clear, the solution makes perfect sense. So this is what this book is trying to do. So another question as we're talking to people, um, looking at this first step experience, um, once you start eating those certain foods, and you know we all have our certain foods, the things that do it for us, right? Are you able to control that um, and predict when you're going to stop eating those certain foods, right? Because I'm the type of guy that says, well, I'm just going to eat one more or one more or two more, or once this, this thing is gone, then I'll be done. But instead, I'm driving to the store for more, right? or I'm eating one more, one more as it's 12 or 13 more. So these are part of these, um, these are part of the problems that we struggle with. And I talked earlier about like the allergy of the body, this abnormal adverse reaction. Um, I talked about the poison ivy. So for instance, uh, the big, big book talks about the main problem is centered in our mind, not the body, right? I have an allergy to poison ivy, I'm pretty sensitive to it. I don't wake up thinking about poison ivy. I've never once tried to go find some poison ivy. I never once tried to have a little bit of poison ivy here just for a little itch because it feels so good, right? And this is how I have to understand my allergy to certain foods, right? They're coupled with a mental obsession. Uh, the mental obsession in one hand with the allergy creates what some people call this double whammy, right? Because if it was just the allergy, we could just, just don't do it. You know, just don't eat those food. You know, you talk to people with shellfish allergies or peanut allergies, they just, they don't eat those foods, right? They're very vigilant uh, about not eating those foods. But I'm the type of guy um, that once I stop eating those allergic foods, I start getting this mental obsession, this uh, compulsion in my mind that says, Let me, you know, maybe just a little bit. Maybe I should break my abstinence. Maybe I should go back to those because I knew what abstinence was as I progressed through um, my journey in Overeaters Anonymous in a more conventional sense before I came to the big book um, and, and really doing it. You know, I had a great food plan. You know, I had a nutritionist who showed me what I should be eating and I grabbed onto that food plan and said, this is it. This is gonna help me lose the weight and I would lose like a good chunk of weight. You know, in a, good, in a couple months I could lose, you know, 20, 30, 40 pounds, right? and I latched onto that food plan. Um, but I was working the tools, and I wasn't having a spiritual awakening um, which would allow me to put that, that, the, those alcoholic foods down um, for good. Um, so for me, without the spiritual awakening, I can't stay away from those alcoholic foods. So there's two important questions. Can we stop, and can we stay stopped? You know, so, you know, um, and it's kind of funny to say, I have two problems with eating compulsively. One, when I'm doing it, and it goes all out of control, and one when I stop, you know, but other than that, I have it, I have it, I have it under control. But when I stop, what happens is I, I begin that, that mental obsession, which is irrevocably bringing me back to that first compulsive bite, unless 
I do the steps and have a spiritual awakening. And Dr. Silkworth talks about an entire psychic change. We have to have an entire psychic change in order to bring about this recovery. Um, so for me, I had some periods of abstinence and I was working tools, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with tools. You can take a hammer and you can build a house. You can take a hammer and you can smash a window, right? Tools in, them, in and of themselves, there's nothing inherently bad about tools, but tools alone aren't going to give us a spiritual awakening that can help us uh, overcome that mental obsession to go back to eating these, um, these, these foods. Um, I just had a thought and I lost it. So um, I have about five more minutes left. Um, so I guess I wanted to also bring it back to the book here um, and more about alcohol from page 30. Um, and I'll try to finish up with some of these thoughts. It says, most of us were un- unwilling to admit we we're real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different than his fellows. Therefore, it's not surprising that our drinking careers has been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing, astonishing many pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. So for me, what that says and, and what I struggled with is this compulsion um, the obsessive thinking, my mental blank spots, um, the coupled with this physical craving, um, ended up distorting some of my perceptions. And what that means is, you know, my compulsive eating started really becoming problematic and gaining weight when I was maybe 10 or 12 years old around kind of puberty, really continuing through um, adolescence and my adult years. It's getting worse, you know, never, and the big book says over any considerable time, it gets worse, never better. So as it's circling around, I'm circling through that cycle, I'm swearing off, it's getting worse and worse. If you talk to me, I'm just about to get a handle on this thing. I'm just about to lose the weight, right? And in my mind every day, I'm telling myself, I'm going to lose the weight, I'm going to get on my food plan. And that's justifying the binge I'm having right now. And this is gonna be the last one, so you might as well make it a, you know, go all out, right? Um, and um, for me, um, I keep losing my thoughts up here. Um, I'll get it back. Hold on. Okay, so, yeah, I know what I was going to say. So um, I'm stuck in this position where anytime you talk to me, I'm losing weight, right? I'm 250, 260 at the time, but I'm, I'm losing weight. And uh, this was brought to my attention uh, I talked to a guy that I play hockey with, and I said, yeah, I'm losing weight. He says, oh, really? Uh, how much have you lost yet? Well, well none really yet, <laughs> right? What are you doing differently to lose the weight? Well, nothing really yet, right? Do you have a goal weight? Well, no, not really, you know. Um, and what it brought to my attention was is stuck in my disease, stuck in my own thinking, um, I'm I'm always losing weight and despite, you know, decades from the age and I was probably like 35, 36 when this conversation happened, you know, from 10, age 10, you know, all through that time as this disease is getting worse, I'm still telling myself I'm just about to get a handle on this. I'm still telling myself I have the power um to do this, that I'm about to overcome this um and finally get it and finally follow that food plan, finally lose the weight. Um, 
so I'm a little bit under time, but I, I'm hard, I struggle with monologuing, so I'm really excited about our question and answer period. So I, I'm just gonna, and I think Naomi said she wants an extra three minutes. I think she does. So I think I'm just gonna end there and, uh, and thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. I'd like to pass some. Oh, thank you. Bless your heart. Thank you. Okay, hi, I'm Naomi, a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. And as I start anything with um, my program, whether sponsoring or whatever it is, I invite God in on the third step prayer. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. Well, I don't want to get into morbid reflection, but I want to share something. The pictures that are coming around, the picture that's with um, a picture of myself with another lady who is my sister, who is also my binge buddy, and the gentleman was my brother. On January 23rd, um, I called my baby brother to wish him a happy birthday. He was 65. And I said, well, kid, how how does it feel to be 49? And he started to laugh. We had a lovely conversation. Saturday morning, the 26th, I I got a a phone call from my sister-in-law that he died suddenly. Well, in a normal life before OA, there would never have been enough food to fill that pain. And then we had to travel down to Kentucky. I live outside Philly. We had to travel down to Kentucky for the funeral. And then he had worked for Walmart. And Walmart was gracious enough to provide the luncheon afterwards. And in the luncheon, there was nothing there I could have eaten. They had Philly food, and they had all kinds of fried this, and anyway, all kinds of stuff, nothing I could have eaten. And there I sat, dying to myself because I had just lost one of my best friends with a cup of water in my hand. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stay in this morbid reflection because that's not where I am. And my brother was very happy with my success with my weight loss. Thank you, God, I give him all the glory. I had the lap band surgery, and it was wonderful, and I remember going for orientation, and I finally found someone that was gonna fix me because I was fat my entire life, and he was gonna fix me. So it was wonderful, I had the lap band. Thank you, God, that I was only allowed that allotted time because I had my daycare business. I took care of six children from zero to three, And um, I didn't have the luxury of taking weeks off to have the full service, the full bariatric service. Thank you, God. So it was great. I I lost 70 pounds. It was wonderful. I found four of those pounds. I went back to the doctor, and he ridiculed me. He made me feel subhuman, which I didn't hate myself enough, but he had to add to it. And so I left, and I thought, He ordered an upper GI to make sure that the band didn't slip. And I thought, oh, this is horrible. So okay, so I couldn't have the huge, large amounts of food, but I could have two or three smaller ones, because the band was put around the wrong place. It should have been tightened around my brain (laughs) instead of (laughs) the top of my stomach. So if I had gained 35 pounds, how could I face him? So I sat and called every bariatric center from here to North Jersey, nobody would touch me. 
I thought, I'm screwed. I'm going over to when my top weight was 280. I'm going over. I'm going over. I'm going to hit 300. Thank you, God. A neighbor came into my home to borrow a pie dish. <laughs> and she was thin. I said, how did you do this? This was around February 7th of 2011. And she said to me, Overeaters Anonymous, I had tried OA back in the 70s. And I picked up two things. One woman said, I'm not going to drink water. I'm not a radiator. And the second gentleman said, nothing tastes as good as abstinence feels. Where did I land? I thought they're crazy, so I left. But I saw what this woman had, and I liked what she had, and I wanted more. February 7th of 2011, I attended my first OA meeting. I came into the room, and there were skinny ladies there. There was no scale. <laughs> Where am I? And then they hand me this book. I'm thinking, if I have two pina coladas a year, that's a lot. What do I want to know about alcoholism? And I received the gold ring that day. Unbeknownst to me, every week we'd read a different chapter and a different paragraph. My paragraph is on page 552, the resentment prayer. And I hated this doctor because he was to fix me. He, he fell down on his job. He didn't fix me. I thought, okay. So someone came up to me afterwards and they said, write your feelings out and you could either burn them or bring them back to me. And I said, okay, I'll bring them back to you. So from February to July, I would go to my OA meeting. I'd read the literature and go to my convenience store and get my binge food. <laughs> Wednesday nights, I, I, I'm a coordinator for a math um, class for adults. And if I were working with a student, I would sit there with a book, a math book in front of me like this. And from all intents and purposes, I was doing math. No, the brain was saying, am I going to Wawa to get an Italian hoagie or roast beef hoagie? From 6.30 to 8.30, who does these things? This was insane. Then I would leave because I talked myself out of eating dinners. And I would go to the store, different stores, because I wouldn't want them, you know, like I said, at 280, for them to think that I was a, a pig or anything like that. <laughs> so then um, I had a sponsor. The only, spon the only thing the sponsor had me do of reading the, the work in the steps was read five pages of the big book and write a paragraph about it. Well, I could do that. Finally, in April of 2013, I went to this amazing workshop in Mount Holly, New Jersey. And this young lady came in. She had beautiful brown hair, carrying a whole stack of the big books, the large print big books. And I'm thinking, what do I need all this space, the, the, the space between the sentences, double space, and the margins and the columns. And if you'd see my book, you could barely see the printing. And the big book was cracked open to me. And a gentleman, a dear sweet love, cracked open the steps. And I have to say, the steps were awoken to me. And it was wonderful. At the bottom of XXII, it says, more often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he's approached, as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer.
and it just it's just amazing this this book it just there's so much here and this was something that the good doctor wrote we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of the alcoholic on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy and the phenomenon of craving is living in to the class of never occurs in the average temperate drinker. This allergic type can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. Once, once having formed the habit and found it cannot break it, once having lost the self-confidence, the reliance upon these human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly dis, dis, difficult to solve. I had no idea that my problem was in my brain. I always thought the next die, and I tried everything. I even tried, oh my gosh, eating some baby food, thinking, well, that would do it. Well, that doesn't do it. I mean, it just, it was just endless, absolutely endless, where this was, where this was going. And I just, I, I couldn't imagine I couldn't imagine my life with the food, or I couldn't imagine my life without the food. Here again, on page XXVI, all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing a phenomenon of craving. This phenomena, as we have suggested, made a manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people, sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been any treatment that which we have familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief have suggested is entire abstinence. Entire abstinence. God bless you. And that's what I had to do. I had to give up the food. So thank you, God. My, my first sponsor... She did have some health issues, so she went out. She turned me on to a vision for you. And I start listening to the phone meeting. And then I put my name out there, and I, I picked up a sponsor. And the sponsor took me through the big book, step by step. And my whole life has been transformed. It's just, it's just unbelievable. I take you back to when I sat at this luncheon for my brother, and Everybody was eating, everybody was eating everything. I sat there with a glass of water in my hand, feeling the pain of loss, but not feeling the pain of the loss of the food because that's gone, and that's been gone. And you know, it's, it's amazing because we've had three grandbabies, no food involved. The death of this loved one, no food involved. And I don't know how it happens. And I once said to someone, how is this happening to me? I'm 71, I'm 72 years young, it's just a number, it doesn't apply to me. I'm doing things now that I couldn't do in my 50s and 60s, like, um, like walk up three blocks where yesterday I walked four miles. It is just unbelievable. And it is this program and is living this every single day. It's not just, I do have a funny story, I have to say. Going back to Mount Holly, I went up to this wonderful person. I can't say his name because he uses my name in the story. Harlan G. He was the speaker that weekend. So I went up to him, and like I said, I was really new with the steps and really new with the big book. So I went up to him and I said, 
may I call you when I'm done working the steps? And he looked at me, and I know he's from Arizona, and here we're in New Jersey. I said, he said no, and I thought, this is a very busy man. He said, because you'll be dead. What the hell, what's he talking about? And then I realized the steps are to be worked every single day. And every single day, I start my day with a God letter. And every single day, I try when I'm able to get on the vision because I do babysit. I babysit three days a week, a two-month-old little baby. And um, I, um, I can't always, because I don't know what she's going to need me to do that early in the morning, but I do listen to the playbacks. And this is true. This is so true, what Bill said. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to be called the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and a usefulness and a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. See, I never had a problem with bulimia because I never gave up my food. <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't who I was about. So that, I can't even, I can't even go down that. that ugh, the thought of that was just too much for me. But I too was sober. And I speak of myself as recovered. I'm not cured. I never will be. I'm not, you know, I, I don't have a normal brain. And it's like I'm around food all the time. I just recently picked up another job, and this is another gift from God. <coughs> I was out on one of my God walks, this one little family that I had in childcare. The little girl did something. She grew up on me, and all of a sudden she's five instead of two months. And she was going on to kindergarten, and I, um, I needed the income. So one day on my God walk, I was walking down Westchester Pike, one of the main highways in Upper Darby, and there were a couple ladies standing at the door. I had been praying on this. And um, I, as people know, I'm not a very shy person. So I had my capris on and a shirt and a hat, you know, and I was out walking with my phone to match my Fitbit. And I, I walked up to this woman and I said, I apologize for my appearance. I said, are you hiring? And she said, yes. I said, I have 25 years experience of daycare in my home and I have my associate degree in early childhood education. She hired me on the spot. Of course, working with children, I had to be fingerprinted and I had to go through the background checks, which I passed. So what do I do? I go over there three, more, three afternoons a week and I serve children food. And I serve children my binge food. And it's like nothing. I'm there to serve. At one point, the ego tried to step in, and that's easing God out. Like with all your experience, you're only serving food. Yes, I am. Because I, I did the work. I did the teaching. Now I, I'm to serve. And I do. I put out these platters and I serve the children. The, my two directors, one's 25, one's 27. And I haven't shared with her yet my background, but I plan to do that because different times they have sweets and cakes and things there. We just had a birthday party the other day for a little four-year-old. And one of the ladies said, now, Miss Naomi, I'm going to ask you if you want some birthday cake. I know you're going to say no. And I said, I don't eat it. And I will explain to her at some point why. I don't have a normal brain. I don't, and I never will. 
And that's okay because I can live, I can live with what I have. And I can't believe that I'm coming up, I'm coming up to um, another big anniversary in July. I mean, this is, this is just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Okay, and you know, um, where it also says about, oh, the, gosh, the sense of ease and comfort. Oh my gosh. I'm not one to forget where I came from because I can't, I can't, I can't because I don't want to go back there. And I'm not at an age that I want to relive those days. But I remember what it was, oh, the ease and comfort. Well, after working eight, eight or nine hours with the kids, and then three hours at the, at the literacy council and sitting there like, wow, I worked all day. I deserve this. I deserve this binge, you know? And it would be so much, so much food. I mean, not only, not only the, the hoagie and the tasty cakes and the candy and the chips, but sweets were not my thing. Thankfully, they weren't. So as a result of that, when my Renee was born, who's 36 years old, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I started cake decorating. I was never a finger licker. I'm still not. And to this day, I still do my cakes because they're just objects. I speak with my sponsor. I don't do them often. The last ones I made was in, at Christmas time. I just made one the other day to take over to the Literacy Council. It's just an object. I have an artistic talent can't draw a straight line with a ruler, but I can decorate a cake. And so, and so, but that's what I do. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I can't tell if my, for my grandchildren, but, you know, they can live through it, um, any snacks that I have in the house, if they're stale or not. It's no big deal. You know, there's sacrifices you have to make. But getting back to the cakes, yes, I do cakes. And I plan on doing some for Easter, and I give them away as gifts. And someone said to me, are you, are you challenging or, or are you, you know, testing your, your God or your, your program? No. How could I test something God gave me? I do them. I whip up it. I've, I've, like I said, I've been doing all these years. I know what the batter is supposed to look like. I know what the icing consistency is to look like. And I make them and I pop off the rings and I cut them up and I serve them. I give it to others. Because that's what I do in my life. Because I am free. I'm happy, joyous, and free. And it's like, crap happens. You know, I just experienced it in January. And it's very true. It's very true. This, this book just has all the answers. Here on page 24, where it says, We're unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness and sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. So I don't tempt anything. When I make my icing, I have other people taste it. If no one's in the house, I go forth and I make and I design what I have to. Because I have a program I have a God that loves me, and this is very true. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute 
certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for which we could never do by ourselves. And that is so, that is so true for me because I was, I was a mess. I was an absolute mess. And God was gracious enough to spare me. I love on page 27. Yes, replied the doctor. There it is, exceptions to cases. And all through that whole chapter, I wrote change, a vital spiritual experience, the phenomena, huge emotional displacement, rearrangement. I've been trying, I mean, God bless you. I tried in so many ways to do all this. And you know what? It didn't work. What worked for me, I mean, it did work. I beg your pardon. It did work for me. And I'm free. I'm a free woman. And I don't know if I'm going to have tomorrow because I'm sure on the 25th, my precious brother didn't think that the next morning he would be dying at the hospital. Like I said, I'm 70. One, May 13th, I'll be 72, God willing. And I just heard about, um, I didn't even get a chance to tell my sponsor this. I just heard about that my oldest brother, there's five of us, my oldest brother, he's been losing weight, nobody knows why. Second to the oldest brother, his name is Michael, we have no relationship, he's hated me my entire life, why I don't know. And that's okay because I pray for him. Just found that recently, part of his leg was amputated. That picture of that lady in there, my darling sister, um, shortly after I retired from work, one of my jobs, um, she fell into a very deep state of depression and she has not come out of it since, so she's gone. So the five of them, the only one is healthy and alive is me. And for a minute, because the disease never dies in me, it says, you should be guilty that you're alive. And I thought, you know what? God wants me to be alive. Because I have a mouth. I've always had a mouth. Funny story in our family was, back in the day, they used to take children's um, um, tonsils. Thank you. They used to take children's tonsils out. And out of my two older brothers and I, they rushed us. We had whooping cough. They rushed us to the hospital, took our tonsils out. And the only one screaming for ice cream, yeah, it was me. The other ones couldn't talk, and I was screaming. Ah, you know what? That's all right. So I, I feel very sorry for my family members. And I pray for them, and I love them. And I'm going to live. I'm going to live. If God wakes me up in the morning, I'm going to get up depending on the day where I'm going to go, whether the baby's coming to my house or I'm going to the daycare center. And I'm going to continue to live because of this book and this program and learning. And I'm telling you, it's just been one of the last few years that God loves me and I'm somebody special. And people that know me know that's a hard, hard statement. And I once approached someone at um, our conference in Newark, New Jersey a couple years ago. I said, you know, I never had an ego problem. I never thought of myself as good enough. I hated myself. And this precious, precious soul said to me, that's still thinking of yourself. 
whoa, that was a hard pill to swallow. But yes, so now I can say, honestly say, I'm enough. And, and I'm there to help others, and thank you God I sponsor. I have a sponsor, and um, I carry the message. If they're gonna ask me to talk, I'm gonna talk because this program saved my life. And it's like, you know, they say 70s, and now the new 60, and I'm gonna buy that. Because like I said, I'm doing things now I couldn't do in my 50s and 60s, so I'm, I'm going for it. I don't know how we're doing time-wise. Eight more minutes. Eight more minutes. Okay. Okay, so let's see what else we can talk about. I mean, it doesn't take anything. I love this book. Like I said, I listen to Vision every day. Okay, here, here on page, let me try to see if I can see the number, on page 30. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we were alcoholics. This is a step one in recovery. The, the delusion that we're like other people are presently, maybe, has to be smashed. So I have a family full of normal eaters. They can have a bite, <laughs> they can have a slice of, they can have a piece of. How do you do that? You know, I mean, sitting there, watching someone eat or being with a family member and they say, oh, I'm full. You know, it's like, whoa, how do you do that? But it is different, it is different for me. I, you know, I just, um, I continue. And I have to say that, oh, this was, this was great. Oh, this was, <laughs> Jim, Jim, love Jim, page 36. I can remember sitting at nighttime watching the TV, and I never deprived myself any food at all. And here it is. This, they read my mind in italics, which is, you know, special. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind. If I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. Well, I'd be sitting there, like I said, I never deprived myself of any food, sitting there watching TV at nighttime, and all of a sudden, a thought would enter my mind to go get something to eat. My husband would be in the back room watching TV, and of course, you know, I was only a liar when it came to my food. I'm a very honest person, but not when it came to my food. All bets were off. And I'd say to my husband, oh, I'm going to go downstairs and get myself a glass of water. Well, I don't know about you, but I used to make sandwiches out of stir fry. Who does these things? I mean, it's like crazy, just crazy. And I would, I would do this night after night, and I'd... I didn't understand. I didn't understand when I did not understand. And that was, that was so true. And my darling friend, the jaywalker. Yeah, I would throw myself in front of moving cars. It wasn't in the form of moving cars, it was a Wawa. Whether it was one or the other or the other. And it just, I never thought anything of it. And this, oh, this, this is classic. Absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. Couldn't do it. I couldn't do it, even with the lap band. And the concept of the lap band is like a belt around the top of your stomach. And the doctor, yeah, this was another good experience. And the tube goes down and over the side, it's called a port. 
And the port is similar to like a, spa, a spool of thread. And then he would eject a needle into this port and it would go up through the tube, inflate the band around the stomach, making it smaller so the opening would be smaller. Well, one day on a visit to the doctor, he couldn't find the port. So he decided in his office, not sterile, to cut open my stomach and adjust the port and sew me back up. The only reason why I knew the day of that was a Friday, because the Sunday, as I was putting my nightgown on, there was a red ring around my stomach. And I called the doctor and he said, go to the emergency room. I developed an infection. And they had to pump me through with um, an antibiotic so that I wouldn't die. And this was all in the name of trying to lose weight. So what happened, to fast forward, when the doctor insulted me of the four pounds, I let it sit for a couple years, praying for him, not thinking too much of it. Then I got up to the expression, excuse the expression, I got up the balls. And I went to see him. And he gave me the time. And I explained to him what he said to me and how he met me, made me feel. Yes, I'm 180, and I, I could release another 20 pounds. Whether it comes off or not, I don't know. It's, it's God's will, and I'm finally accepting that fact because for the longest time, I haven't been able to. I'm thinking, I should be down to 125, what, 18 years old? It doesn't matter. I'm healthy. So the doctor gave me the apology, and he said to me, he said, if you want to, you're welcome to come back, and I'll give you another fill, and we'll take care of it. And I walked out of there. Of course, I cried, you know, because I'm a crybaby. I walked out of there, and I cried, and I thought, Lord, if I go back to him, it would be like slapping you in the face. I got what I needed. I got the apology from this doctor. And that never happens. Doctors don't apologize for anything. I got the apology that I needed, and that was it. I do wear a band because it says that I have, and thankfully, on this band, it also says no sugar, <laughs> which is great. So I do wear this band, and the lap band is nothing. It has no effect on my body. It's just there. Yes, I have the scar in my stomach. You know, I have stretch marks. Who cares? Who cares? I cover it with clothes nobody has to see. I'm not going to be wearing a two-piece down to the shore, not at my age. <laughs> and it's like, it's okay. I am alive. I have a mouth. I can talk this program because I live it. I live it every single day. It's not an illusion. It has been smashed. And I am just... Okay, so down here on page 41, not only have I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not a thought of consequences at all. And that's what my life was. It's not my life today. I'm happy, joyous, and free. And I am a recovered compulsive overeater.